Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Well, today, Karen and I are really delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Craig Malkin to the podcast. Craig is a lecturer in psychology for Harvard Medical School, and he's in private practice as a licensed psychologist. He has over two decades of experience in helping couples, individuals, and families. He's the author of the excellent book, Rethinking Narcissism. His research has been published in peer-reviewed journals, And he has a blog on psychologytoday.com called Romance Redux. And he's also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Dr. Malkin's advice and insights are regularly featured in major magazines and newspapers, as well as in TV and radio shows. Craig also has a popular YouTube channel specifically dealing with narcissism. And he was a contributing author to the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. So thank you so much for joining us, Craig. Thanks for having me. And you mentioned the idea of secure attachments in childhood being protective against children developing narcissism in later life. That's such an important point for the people that that we see all the time, because I think probably the biggest, most important question that I get most frequently is how do I protect the children from becoming narcissistic? You know, when they've divorced, when the children are spending 50% of the time, for example, with the narcissistic parent, um, how do I protect the children from becoming narcissistic? So please answer that one uh, for us, if you will. I'd be happy to, because people are always so reassured when I do, and I get asked this question all the time. My, my clients who come to me ask me this question, and there's a clear answer that's really robust in the research that does come back to attachment security. First of all, we know that kids who develop that sense that they can you know, trust in mutually caring and connected relationships that they can share their vulnerable self 
that they can engage in effective dependency, that those kids um, score high on measures of self-enhancement and, and, and healthy narcissism. It actually gives people healthy narcissism. So that's, that's one piece of research. Another piece of research that was really important that was done by a psychologist in a very clever way, a psychologist named Phoebe Kramer. She did a longitudinal study of 20 years, phenomenal, tracing kids from preschool through early adulthood. And she came up with a measure for early precursors for narcissism, observational measures. This is not self-report. None of her stuff was self-report. I think that's important to mention as well, that the measures that she were was using were, were based on other people's observation of these kids and young adults. And the what she found is that there are early signs of narcissism. And we already know there's a genetic component to narcissism too. There's some heritability where mm-hmm. they show early signs of uh, needing to always be the center of attention, right? That makes sense. Uh, being histrionic or hysterical, overly dramatic, bullying. If you could imagine what a preschooler looks like when they're already pretty histrionic creatures to begin with, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Who it, it scores high on this measure. And now you can see like, this is going to be a really clear indicator because obviously this is somebody, this is a kid who's scoring outside the range. And she followed them over time. And sure enough, the ones who showed these early precursors, and to tie it to your question, there there could be some heritability from a narcissistic parent. Maybe that's why this kid, there's some temperamental wiring they come into the world with, and that could come from a parent, not just modeling. But in any case, they she traced them over time. Sure enough, those kids uh, turned out to be more unhealthily narcissistic when by the time they reached young adulthood, unless... Mm-hmm unless they had the kind of parenting called authoritative parenting, which is Mm -hmm. warm, but limit setting. That is, you can't just do anything. There are consequences. You have to consider other people, but also with warmth and parents who Mm -hmm. showed that style of authoritative parenting that correlates highly with secure, secure attachment, their kids did not grow up to have pathological narcissism. Mm -hmm. They were protected against Mm -hmm. it. And there's a third line of research that shows that attachment security in and of itself with just one caretaker is enough to protect kids from, from mental health difficulties, including things like personality disorders. So my answer to the question is regardless of what the other parent is doing, if you can be there for your child when they are having feelings about it, just like if they had to face any other, uh, any other aversive experience in the world, right? We can't protect our kids from every tragedy or loss or abuse in the world. And it's not our, we can't do it. And that's not our job. Our job is to give them the resources to cope with it. Right. So they get out into school and they get into other environments. They face these things, too, not just with a parent. And it turns out that what equips kids with the capacity to face that without turning to, say, addictive means of feeling special that you see in pathological narcissism is being securely attached. 
And if you model that for them, they have all the protection they need. Now, I'm just wondering if there's an age. So, um, you know, when do they need to be securely attached by to a parent? This is the fascinating thing, too. Attachment security is resilience. Notice that what I'm doing, even over the course of years in, in my work with clients in various ways, trying to create experiences that foster a capacity for attachment security. This is way later in life. And there is research that mm-hmm. shows that if you get kids even, you know, age of mm-hmm. eight or nine or 10, uh, that they can develop attachment security given the opportunity to in this kind of warm, caring, structured parental relationship, that kids are actually fairly resilient given the opportunity. So if you are as a parent are worried that you have, you know, there can there can be these situations where you have a kid with a difficult temperament. Obviously, that's what happened in Phoebe Kramer's study. And I've, I've often said that if you want a recipe for narcissistic personality disorder, or extreme narcissism, combine a different, a difficult temperament with with li- with limitations in parenting that cause attachment insecurity. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have to be that the person is inherently a lousy parent. Mm-hmm. A difficult kid can overwhelm the resources of anyone when they don't have enough support. Mm-hmm. So even if you're concerned that you're in that situation with a kid, you get support, get the guidance that you need, and you you can actually start to ameliorate some of these problems. You can mm-hmm. start to shape that child's experience where they can build trust again. Again, that's so important in this context of divorce and separation, because what I think I see happening so much is that when the parents are together, the non-narcissistic spouse very often kind of enables the narcissist's behaviour. And it really confuses the, the child. You sort of have to, to do that, don't you, to some degree. You can't, you're not separated, you're not separate. So there's a lot of enabling going on. Oh, mummy loves you really. She loves you very much, yeah. but she's she's just yeah. having one of those days or whatever. But once you're separated, once you're in your different mm-hmm. houses and the children are split between you time-wise, you really get to model that. You really get to be that sort of secure attachment for, for the children, I think. It's a much more clear way than, than you could do it if you were still in that sort of toxic relationship relationship both at home together i think 100 true absolutely i'm so glad you made that point because so many people kind of get stuck they feel somehow they feel they can protect better if they stay in that home environment in that relationship and i can't just say it i have to help people experience the truth of this but it's that's not the case first of all you're not you're the best version of yourself as a parent or a person if you're in an unhealthy relationship like that. So your kids don't get the best you. Second of all, your point, which is you don't have the power to model what you need to. Mm-hmm. You don't have the space and you don't have the power. Mm-hmm. And so actually it's far more protective if you're in a destructive or unhealthy relationship for your kids, for you to free yourself up to be the best parent you can. Yeah. If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for Sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com.
Yeah. And that, that, as you say, that notion of staying for for the children, for the sake of the children, it kind of doesn't work in these situations with, with when you've got a personality in the mix. That's right. Yeah, I think staying in a relationship for the children doesn't work on any level, but it, it, it manifests itself even more um, specifically when you have an, an abusive or narcissistic relationship. But, uh, you know, people who say, oh, you know, I'm going to stay for the children and, and then I'm going to leave. All, all you do is put your life on hold because children grow up and they have their own lives. And as Craig rightly says, they can't they can't learn from the best you role model if you are a subservient, battered, pathetic excuse of what you could be. Yeah. Um, you're yeah. not going to give them the right um, the right analogy yes. at yeah. all. Um, but I think that applies across the board. And, and yeah, often we, we see clients who who come for an appointment and then they decide, well, no, they, they're going to stick it out. And very often they come back 10 years later and think, you know, what a waste of life that was. Children or sometimes as adults, why did you stay? It was horrible. Why did you put us through that? You know, everything's got to start yeah. with what's right for you. And then if you get you right, everyone around you will start to be right as well. I think that can be really difficult, though, for the people who've been through narcissistic relationships and uh, particularly really, really long term ones where they do have children. I mean, this is off the top of my head, but I reckon that at least 50 percent of people that I see will say to me, I couldn't leave for myself. And in the end, I, I left for the children. So, you know, that, again, is a very common thing. They didn't have the strength to leave for themselves. But actually, when they saw what it was doing to the children, when they saw what they were modelling as well, they left for yeah. the sake of the children. That's really yeah. powerful. Yeah. And a lot of times it's, it's, you know, hopefully people hearing this can take some of this in who are stuck, who are struggling in this kind of relationship, but that really is the process of healing. I mean, there, there are trauma symptoms that get in the way of this kind of awareness. People's yeah. fears can actually blind them to, to the reality. And part of the healing process is what gets them to the point of of clarity. I mentioned one earlier, right? The, very often, these are people who need to get in touch with their primary adaptive anger first, whether they act on it right away or not. And it's not necessary to. I always say before next steps, let's get just get you clear about what you're feeling in response to this. Mm-hmm. Not what you're not what you're trying to feel. And not what you want to feel, but what you're actually feeling. Yeah. Before we go anywhere, let's start there. And that that's stripping away or maybe softening and setting aside layers and layers of defenses that led to being uh, mired in a relationship like this in the first place, including sometimes previous trauma. But you're absolutely right. If people can take this in, it's mm-hmm. the best thing that you can do for yourself Mm-hmm. For your for to to help your kids is to take care of yourself in this way. If we even take the mildest example of not, let's say we're not talking about an extraordinarily abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Let's say we're not talking about somebody who has a narcissistic partner at all. Let's talk about a relationship where people have completely drift, drifted apart and they're in different, diff, like living in different worlds, and they're in a loveless marriage. And they're not having affairs. They're just stuck having a, a loveless marriage, mm-hmm. like strangers in a room. What kind of parent is your child getting if they don't have a parent who feels loved? Mm-hmm. Right. What what version of that does it do you mm-hmm. then present? Mm-hmm. Probably not causing 
over clear, you know, harm, but there's, that's going to be a different version of you. So no matter how we look at this, leaving that out is not helpful to the kids. Yeah. And you're sort of almost promoting inauthenticity, aren't you? Yes. You're also modeling, you know, defenses that aren't, that aren't helpful, like not seeing that, not relating authentically, not expressing feelings and, and honoring your own feelings authentically. And that, that is a model for kids. Yeah, and sort of not being able to sort of experience yeah. intimacy, you know, yeah. in the sort of non-sexual way, just that, you know, yeah. vulnerability with, with yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting, you know, you talk about the, the anger thing and, and how are you feeling? And one of the most powerful practices, I think, for people in this situation is mindfulness. You know, just getting in touch with how they are actually feeling, not judging it, you know, um, but how are you? What are you actually feeling? Break it down in this moment now. Because often they just don't allow themselves to feel that they're just pushing it all away because they're not entitled to feel anything. You know, they feel like they're not important to feel any, they shouldn't be feeling this way. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's sort of similar to, in some ways to, to what you were saying about mm -hmm. just embracing how they're actually feeling and getting in touch with that. So important. Embodied feeling in relationship mm -hmm. uh, is so crucial to this kind of work. Absolutely. We've been writing a book and we've got a chapter about dating after leaving a narcissistic ex. And I, I noticed in your book, you had a case history and it was a lady who was complaining that she, I think she'd met someone, um, but everyone she was meeting, she was attracted to bad boys basically. And everybody that was healthy for her um, seemed really boring in comparison to her narcissistic partner. What's all that about? Why does that happen? It's one of the most common problems and it really relates to struggles that we have as as human beings, not just in, with relationships with people who are narcissistic. Freud's quote, which captures it so well, where they love, they do not have desire, and where they desire, they do not love. It's this, it's this problem of feeling free to act on our desires and own them and initiate them and bring excitement ourselves rather than kind of find someone who em who embodies it and brings it out for us. And this is essentially what bad boy, bad girl relationships are. There's that common phrase that you hear from people like, I'm usually not like this. And that's a tip off to me that what's happening there is disowned desire. Now, when you're in a relationship with somebody like one of these bad boys or bad girls, like the person that I mentioned in the book, you are in an inherently insecure relationship because the more narcissistic someone is, the more like variously unavailable they are. And you always feel like the ground is going to fall out from underneath you. So part of what's going on there is that in, in addition to us sort of depending on someone else to kind of stir things up, we're depending on an unhealthy relationship to stir things up in ways that we have to change. So that we know from like decades of research that unfortunately, when we're attracted to someone, if at the same time we're, say, afraid or feeling insecure, it actually increases feelings of attraction. It's something called arousal. It's like a general physiological charge that happens. And boy, when you're in a relationship with someone like this, that happens in spades. Uh, it's, it can be like being on an out-of-control roller coaster terrifying and also at times exciting and that's what that whole dynamic is about but very often it's because of disowned desire there's no experience of feeling 
like mm -hmm. for feeling like I can say this thing excites me. I can only wait for the bad boy or bad girl to sort of invite me into this experience with either of sex or some like great risk that we take. So a big part of changing that is that once you move on to terra firma from like that experience of feeling like the ground is going to fall out and that's where all the arousal and excitement comes from, you got to find a different source of arousal. And in healthy relationships, that means taking emotional risk. That means owning our desires. So I always ask people when they're describing this to me, so you're you're dating Steve now, and you say he's really nice, not nicey nice. He he can challenge things and he can hold his own and all that sounds great, but it feels boring to you. Mm -hmm. So are you doing and seeking out any of the experiences with Steve? Uh, that that you did with Jim, your narcissistic ex. I mean, I know Jim did all these things, but have have you tried to lead the way with them? Have you introduced them? I know you liked having sex in a certain way with with Jim. Have have you tried initiating that? You know, with with Steve. And always the answer is no. Mm -hmm. That's that disowning of desire. I mean, and there are defenses that get in 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 the way of it. But it can be something simple too. Like we know that interestingly relating in a securely attached fashion, obviously takes risk to be open emotionally and vulnerable. Yeah. And it's exciting when you're able to do that and you get a positive response and someone moves closer. This is very different from the excitement coming from, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, are they going to be there? Are they going to call me back? Are they going to be here? It's the excitement of being known. So we have to replace the source of arousal from what I call insecure passion. Mm -hmm. And we have to move it to secure passion. And that mm -hmm. changes the dynamic. And then you, can, then you can desire where there is love. What is it that stops them from asking for what they want? It's often not being able to assert themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sort of wait for it to be brought to them and sort of pulled out of them. This is the other thing I would say about it. The reason it's so clearly disowned desire is that nobody can pull anything out of us that isn't already there. All that happens is that we're uncomfortable owning it and leading with it. Is it something that we want? So lack of assertiveness, mm -hmm. fear of being open about wants, think about echoism. Mm -hmm. These aren't people who are going to come out and say what excites them. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of any special attention whatsoever, but then they cut off the source of excitement that could actually help them experience a healthier relationship as exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, so talk about, talk about a setup. So, but it can also just be that, you know, the, the, the shame yeah. of owning those feelings, right? Learned shame that I'm not, it's not okay for me to, to talk or think in these dirty ways. It's not okay for me to want more from this interaction and ask for it. That's being greedy, or that's being uh, that's being promiscuous. I mean, you go through the list. It's all about clamping down on desire and excitement. I wonder actually whether you know they, in the classic example of you know narcissistic relationships, they've shared their vulnerabilities, and then classically, what happens is that those vulnerabilities are sort of weaponized and fired straight back at them uh, later on in the relationship. So perhaps they're sort of really scared about that, scared about being humiliated or having their their what they their desires weaponized. 100% too. Yes. That is exactly 
what keeps people sort of shrouding all of those needs and desires and sources of excitement in shame because I'm going to get attacked again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be get put down. I'm going to get hurt. So there's also, to your point, the learned fears of being in an unhealthy relationship that then paradoxically keep us adapted to being in an unhealthy relationship and less excited about healthier ones. And of course, there's trust in there as well, isn't there? And I, I don't know if you've ever seen the um, Brené Brown. Are you familiar with Brené mm-hmm. Brown? Absolutely. Yeah. So her, she has a thing online, which is absolutely brilliant, called the anatomy of trust. It's just brilliant. And I always sort of advise people who've been in narcissistic relationships who were thinking about getting back out in the dating game to go and look at that. It just breaks down trust beautifully. People who've been in those relationships tend, I think they tend to just trust people as a matter of course. They don't realise that trust has to be earned. So I think it's all wrapped up in in all of this as well. Yeah. And built. Yes. Right. Uh, People who... Uh, have had this experience it's like it's binary the trust is there or or it isn't but trust is a mutual Mm -hmm. unfolding emergent experience where you share one thing feel the response how is it taken in by that person that pulls a response from you so as soon as it starts to feel like you have to find it and you know either person has it or it doesn't Already you're in this mindset that makes it hard to move out and into a healthier relationship where, yeah, trust is built and created. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're reminding me here of the concept of, of chemistry in the dating game. People want chemistry, don't mm-hmm. they? they want instant chemistry. And, and there's a danger in that. Well, we always think there's a danger in that, uh, myself and Karen, that with those who've been in narcissistic relationships, chemistry might actually be a, be a bit of a red flag because you're actually experiencing familiarity rather than chemistry. I, mean, I don't know what you think about that. I absolutely agree. That's what, that's. I mean, I think that's insecure passion. Uh-huh. Um, so we can have the butterflies in our stomach. We want that. We should have that. That's part of the fun idealization of the beginning relationship. Uh, and it's exciting and wonderful, but we also want to have our eyes open and you know be able to test out: Can I have a different opinion? Uh, can I find a point where mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we don't share the same taste? Uh, can I say that something didn't feel good? Even early on in interactions, there are there are moments where you can register that that you felt disconnected in some way. If it's all about that chemistry and maintaining or finding that chemistry, then you then you become blind to those things, and that's very different from you know the the normal fun, healthy, but and butterflies that that we should all have in the beginning of a relationship. That's that initial excitement. It, there's even studies that show that that kind of experience is a good is a predictor of longevity of couples. You know, sort of ha- being able to maintain that kind of you know, you know, worshiping the ground that your partner walks on to some extent over time or what are called positive illusions mm. that bring that sense of chemistry and excitement. But it has to come with that mindfulness and uh, an awareness of, am I relating in an old way or am I opening up to relate in a, a, a new way where, for example, I can be excited about this person and we can have a point of difference, which of course, in a narcissistic relationship, you can't do. Mm-hmm. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, 
please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.